Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brobeck. I'm Kemper Donovan. And Kemper, I think you're going to be very excited about what we're covering this week. Oh, I think I am too, because we are covering a Miss Marple novel. We are recovering the mirror cracked from side to side. As thrilled and excited as I am, I would just like to make an announcement up top of our episode. We were fortunate enough to get our hot little hands on two complimentary copies of a book that we spent an entire episode discussing. That would be our dear friend Mark Aldridge's book, his newest book, Agatha Christie's Poirot, The Greatest Detective in the World. Now, we are going to be holding a little giveaway contest for this via our Patreon site. And unfortunately, this is only going to be open to U.S. listeners because the books are coming direct from the publisher in the U.S. and they can only mail out to U.S. addresses. So apologies to everyone outside of this country in which we are recording. Uh, It is not by design, but we would just like to let you all know in case there are any of you who were thinking about checking out our Patreon site and perhaps becoming patrons, what we're going to do in terms of the contest is create a super duper difficult Agatha Christie quiz for the true stands out there. And the first two people to uh, submit quiz results 100% correct, just A++++ Christie students uh, will be the ones to receive those books. So if you would like to participate and you are a U.S. listener and you are not yet part of our Patreon family, head on over to our Patreon site at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. And that quiz should be dropping in uh, the next week or two. We'll give advance notice. So it's not just going to appear randomly without us telling you what time it's going to appear. Absolutely. Yes. We'll, we'll send out a post in advance, let you know when that will drop. And then uh, with pencils poised, they don't even have to be number two pencils. There will be no Scantron involved in the correcting of these quizzes, but uh, you will be ready if you want to be to uh, get all of your answers in as quickly as possible. All right. So let's move on to much greener pastures or are they in St. Mary Mead these days, Catherine. Well, I think fewer pastures in general. Fewer pastures in general, for sure. Uh, And let's talk a little bit about The Mirror Cracked from Side to Side, which is our second Christie title, Promising a Mirror That Does Not Deliver on Its Promise. The first, of course, (laughs) being (laughs) They Do It With Mirrors, another Miss Marple title. I feel like at this point, there's an unspoken rule that if the word mirror appears in the title of an Agatha Christie novel, a mirror will not figure centrally into the mystery. With the built-in condition that, of course, the opposite holds for any Christie short stories, since we have the novella Dead Man's Mirror and the short story In a Glass Darkly, both of which do feature mirrors. Well, I mean, if you think about how often the title, which we're going to talk about in a second, is quoted in this, you pretty much get a lot of mirror content, especially if you know what the poem is, because the poem is, in fact... 
Alfred Lord Tennyson, who we know Agatha loves dearly. It's the Lady of Shalott. It is indeed. And we get a lovely little epigraph of a stanza of that poem before we even start the book. And, you know, we talk a lot about Christie titles that are based on quotations from Shakespeare or nursery rhymes or, um, you know, other sources. And this is one that is heavily, heavily referenced and quoted throughout the book. So it's worth just reading out, I think. Out flew the web and floated wide. The mirror cracked from side to side. The curse has come upon me, cried the Lady of Shalott. So, I mean, the context of this is basically that the Lady of Shalott is not allowed to actually look out on the Camelot. She's only allowed to see it as a reflection until... She decides to turn around because someone very handsome comes by. Someone by the name of Lancelot with some curling black hair. She just can't help herself. And she turns away from her work. She looks out And the reference, which I didn't understand actually until I actually bothered to read this poem in full. Very proud of myself that I Googled the mirror cracked from side to (laughs) side. Congratulations. Yeah, it's it's actually pretty long too. It It was surprisingly long, but out flew the web and floated wide. That's the piece of weaving that she's working on. It basically goes out the window once she abandons it. And then the mirror that she's been using to see the world cracks and she realizes that this curse has come upon her. But the irony of this whole poem, or at least what I was able to pick up when I read it, is that it's never really clear what the curse is. The curse seems to be largely self-inflicted because after that, the Lady of Shalott descends from her tower where she's been working seemingly for her entire life and puts herself into a little boat And the boat sails on down this river to Camelot, the city that she was never able to really participate in. And by the time she gets there, she's dead, I suppose, of exposure or sadness or woe. And (laughs) giant fans of 19th century pre-Raphaelite paintings will obviously know the Lady of Shalott, if not from this poem, but from the um, Waterhouse painting of her in you know, despair with her beautiful curly hair. Indeed. Yeah. There's the lady of Shalott in her boat and then Ophelia drowning in the river by Malay. Those are the two sort of poster children for pre-Raphaelite artwork that appears on many a college dorm wall. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Definitely so. And then, you know, by the time she gets to Camelot in this boat, she's dead and everyone's sort of gazing upon her in pity. And Lancelot edges everyone out and, and he says the final lines of the poem, which are actually also included in this very book, to end the novel and those would be he said she has a lovely face god in his mercy lend her grace the lady of shalott so just a very tragic and dramatic sort of tale of a woman who had a troubled existence which you know may or may not have some thematic resonance with what is going on here in this mystery Yeah, absolutely. It might. And so we can touch on the publication history. It was first published in the UK in November of 1962 by Collins Crime and in the US in September of 1963 by Dodd Mead. The US title was shortened to The Mirror Cracked. They lopped off that second half of the Tennyson quote. I suppose they figured that American audiences did not love their Tennyson as much as readers across the pond. Though I'm happy to say that the apostrophe replacing the E in cracked was left intact. 
Gotta love that apostrophe. There wasn't a bridge to serialization in Canada, but we don't actually have the usual US and UK serializations for this title. And I'll get to why in a moment. But just one more note on the title. The initial working title for this was Development Murder, which makes a lot of sense because there's the development in St. Mary Mead. It's essentially like an excerpt because what we kind of find out um, as this goes along is that um, St. Mary Mead is no longer really isolated from the larger towns around it. It is now essentially an extension um, because the development, and it's called the development capitalized throughout the book, it's impinging now on Little St. Mary Mead. It's it's become part of it. There are no longer the meadows. There are no longer the farms. Instead, you have sprawl, which you see a lot, obviously, in post-war development in both the UK and in the United States. Yeah, that post-war boom has finally come to Little St. Mary Mead. It's no longer this isolated, idyllic English country village. You know, in the earlier Miss Marples, Much Benham was a few miles away and you had to go there in Inch, which is referenced a lot in this book as well. Inch is still around, the taxi service in St. Mary Mead. But those boundaries are blurring now because of the development and the world is encroaching on St. Mary Mead. So it makes a lot of sense that that was the initial working title for the book. We'll be talking a lot more about that theme, which is a very predominant one in the book. And then there is actually a specific reason for why there isn't an American or British serialization for this title. And it's something that Christie usually did, quite frankly, because she made a lot of money off of those serializations from early on in her career. And she certainly tried, uh, her agents tried to get a serialization. But per Laura Thompson, Christie biographer, uh, and I'm quoting here now from her, this book was uneasily received by her American agency, which thought the subject matter potentially offensive. It was out for the women's magazines, Edmund Cork wrote with reference to the serialization market. And we'll get into exactly why. I think if you're listening to this episode, you probably know exactly why. <laughs> this was a potentially distasteful topic. It's pretty clear when you read it why that might be. <laughs> yes. And we'll talk more about that, I think, when we're on the other side of our summary, which we will get to in a moment. But before we do, I just want to highlight one more little piece of the opening pages of this book, which is the dedication. And we don't always talk about Christie's dedications, but uh, this is a pretty famous one, or perhaps infamous, I should say, because the dedication reads to Margaret Rutherford in admiration. And I wrote next to that lie, because we do know that... <laughs> Agatha Christie did not at least admire the first of the MGM Miss Marple movies, which Margaret Rutherford had done by the time The Mirror Cracked from Side to Side came out. That would be Murder, She Said, which came out in the fall of 1961. That was, of course, the first of four of those movies. It was an adaptation of 450 from Paddington, and we know that Agatha hated it. Um, but she did seem to have some real personal affection for Margaret Rutherford. And I think it's worth noting, again, per Laura Thompson, what Margaret Rutherford's response was to this dedication. She wrote to Agatha Christie saying, I can assure you that this is one of the proudest moments of my life. I am glad you were really so pleased with my performance as no one but yourself really knows what Miss Marple is like. I just put myself in her hands with faith and let her do the rest and very happy she made me. I just wanted to note the fact that there's this slight dissonance in that dedication, but also that 
you know, Margaret Rutherford was quite lovely and there is a lot to love about her and perhaps even parts of her performance in those extremely controversial MGM movies. So it's, it's just, it's an interesting way to start an interesting book. And let's start it in earnest now, Catherine, with a little discussion of our victims. Right. So we have um, Heather Badcock, this young housewife. She lives in development. She's a local committee chairwoman and she's poisoned at Gostington Hall, which we haven't seen in a while, but she's poisoned at Gostington Hall during a fate or a party, depending on who's describing it here for the ambulance fundraiser. Right, the St. John Ambulance Fundraiser. And then I'm just actually going to uh, run through our second and third victims because they happen in quick succession late in the novel. We definitely have some late-breaking murders happening here in this late career, Christy. So our second victim is Ella Zelensky. She's the secretary to the film director, Jason Rudd. And she dies from using an atomizer, aka a nasal inhaler, that is laced with cyanide. And uh, apparently it really upset Catherine. Oh, I mean, as somebody who is a user of Flonase and an asthma inhaler and has been for my entire life, that's sort of terrifying to me. (laughs) And then our third victim is Giuseppe, who is the Italian butler at Gossington Hall. And he is shot point blank in the back. Well, let's move on to our suspects. And as it so often is in an Agatha Christie novel, it's pretty much everyone. And there are a lot of characters. So let's run through them. First up, we have Marina Gregg, who is the American movie star who has purchased Gossington Hall and is a bit of a stress case that may be putting it mildly. She's got some issues. Yeah, she does. And then we have her husband and Jason Jinx Rudd. It's a kind of running joke that either it's her fifth husband or her fourth husband. Suffice it to say, she's been married quite a few times. And (laughs) um, so people like to make that mistake for the whole book, but he's very much a sort of famous film figure and is very much devoted to her. Next up, we have Lola Brewster, an actress who shows up at the fate. She is the ex-wife of one of Marina's past husbands. This husband having divorced Lola to marry Marina. So Lola supposedly threatened to shoot Marina at one point out of jealousy, though this all seems to be water under the bridge. Or so says Lola. Right. And we have Ardwick Fenn, who's an old flame of Marina's, who she said to have rejected cruelly, perhaps instilling a long simmering resentment in him. He's a big shot in the television and moving picture world, quote unquote. Producer or a, or a studio, you know, mogul, something along those lines. He seems to be sort of a money guy. Mm-hmm. And then we have Margot Bentz, who is a young photographer at the party, who may have a more personal connection to at least one person in attendance. Maybe we'll find out. And we have Haley Preston, who is the personal assistant to Jason Rudd. He's a little fishy. Then we have Arthur Badcock, who is the husband of our main victim, Heather Badcock. So, you know, the husband is always a good suspect to look to in one of these mysteries. Could he be concealing something? And we have, last but certainly not least, Kemper. Last but most, Catherine. Last oh my most. gosh. This um, is not really a suspect, but we do have to <laughs> include her because she also is in attendance at this fate. And that would be our beloved gardener of the year, Dolly Bantry. Dolly obviously did not do it, but she is in attendance at this thing and in actual very close vicinity to the victim. 
Indeed. All right, let's get into the world as it appears to be. We open in this book for quite a while, actually. I believe the first three chapters very much frame this story within the world of St. Mary Mead and within Miss Marple's world as well, because Miss Marple's relation to St. Mary Mead has changed a little bit since we last saw her. You know, we already made reference to the fact that St. Mary Mead has changed with the times and Miss Marple is feeling a little bit out of touch although she's not really sitting around feeling sorry for herself, wishing that the times hadn't changed. She is very sensibly accepted that those changes are happening, but understandably seems a little bummed out by them. For a Marpolite such as myself, I was in heaven for these three Mm -hmm. chapters, but it was a bittersweet experience because it really does feel as though this is the first novel that is a quote-unquote late Christie. I think right. the difference between The Pale Horse and The Mirror Crack from Side to Side is immediately palpable from a reading perspective where, you know, you just start reading and you're like, oh, this is a writer. And it, it's very obvious that Christie is drawing on her own feelings here as someone who is now in her 70s. Let's not forget, she was born in 1890 and we're in the 60s. So she is now elderly herself. And it's very obvious that she's drawing on her own feelings and impressions of the changing world. And, you know, we even know actually from Janet Morgan that driving around and looking at various developments near her, you know, various neighborhoods that she lived in, and just sort of wondering about the people who lived in them uh, is something that she liked to do. So this is very much, I think, close to Christie's own experience. I find the beginning of it poignant. We find out that Miss Marple has been ill and she's a little bit or a lot more housebound than normal, but it's made worse by the fact that she has an unfortunate nursemaid in one Miss Knight. And we'll just say Miss Knight is more than a little condescending. This is definitely putting it a little too strongly, but there's almost a little bit of a misery element to the relationship between Miss Knight and Miss Marple. You have a compound fracture of the tibia in both legs and the fibula in the right leg is fractured too. I could hear the bones moving, so it's best for your legs to remain immobile. And as soon as the roads open, I'll take you to a hospital. In the meantime, you've got a lot of recovering to do. For one who has as much affection for Miss Marple as I do, I did experience that same sort of horror that you do when you're watching or reading Misery because Miss Knight sort of has Miss Marple in her clutches and she is condescending. She treats Miss Marple as though she is less capable than she is. And, and, and the tragedy of that is that we all know Miss Marple is probably one of the most capable people on the earth in which she lives. And there's a running joke by which Miss Knight uses the royal we. And she says, oh, you know, we must, you know, we we mustn't tire ourselves out now. And perhaps we want a little drink. And, you know, and it's awful. And Miss Marple keeps on responding, you might want that, but I don't. And, you know, Miss Knight's like, oh, you have your little joke. But there's a real feeling of, you know, Miss Marple being trapped here in this situation where this woman has been brought in with the best of intentions by Raymond West, by Miss Marple's nephew, to help take care of her. And and the unfortunate part of this is to some extent that, you know, one of the things that Miss Marple legitimately is upset about is like she keeps dropping stitches in her knitting. Yeah, and- I mean, she is actually aging. I mean, that's the thing. She is getting more feeble and frail. And well, less and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna find her. that out immediately after because she sends Miss Knight off 
to do this very funny list of impossible errands for her. She knows Miss Knight will, first of all, chat up every sort of shopkeeper. And secondly, knows that some of the things are not available. She asks for whisk without the crank, <laughs> which she knows that the store that she's sending Miss Knight to does not carry. Which which made me wistful, or perhaps I should say whiskful, for the days when whisks did have cranks. It's been a while since I've I've seen one of those, even depicted. I know. In a period show. <laughs> I know. But she escapes. She gives it a beat just in case Miss Knight forgot something. And she runs out because she wants to see the development. She's been kind of stuck in her um, house. And as we all know, she likes to know all the goings on in St. Mary Mead. And she's not really spent a lot of time in the development. So she sneaks out. This is also sad because she trips and falls. She does, because again, the feebleness is real. And what happens is that she's rescued by Heather Badcock and also her husband, Alfred. And they're incredibly nice to Miss Marple. But Heather is a bit of a chatty Cathy. She's, she's kind of an oversharer. And she tells Miss Marple all about Marina Gregg, this movie star who's moving into Gossington Hall, and how she is just Marina's biggest fan. And once upon a time, just years and years ago, she got to meet Marina in person. And even though you know she'd been so sick, she got out of bed and she slapped makeup on and she wasn't going to let her sickness ruin the fact that she needed to meet her idol, Marina Gregg. And, you know, she goes on and on about this. And Miss Marple basically hightails it out of there as quickly as she can. It's this weird winding story, right? That we're just supposed to like think of as this annoying person, but we will hear this story over and over again, in fact. And I think, you know, the interesting thing is that anytime a book is read, you know, in any specific moment, it's going to be read a little bit differently, both as to a reader's life, but also the world in which the reader lives. And I think I think it is harder than ever to bury the significance of a story that involves someone breaking quarantine when they are sick and going to meet someone in a crowd of people. It's hard to bury the significance of that story to a reader in 2020 slash 2021, because we know the risks there inherent in breaking quarantine. You know, it's funny, like we obviously reread this book. We know what happened. So, you know, but at the same time, I was struck by how quickly into this book you know where this is going. This, I think, is the rare Christie where there's perhaps not quite enough going on. There's not enough obfuscation. And it's funny, but the, the, the only other time I can recall saying that was when we were covering another Miss Marple I already mentioned, they do it with mirrors because that one also was potentially a bit easy to solve, even though I can never solve any of them. We'll talk more about that because there is some rewriting that Christy actually had to do to make it a little bit more difficult to figure out. But certainly upon a reread, it is one of those books that gets very, very streamlined. I was struck by that too. Yeah, It gets a whole lot better though, doesn't it, Catherine? Because it does, what happens because, next? Well, we get reintroduced to, again, our beloved Dolly Bantry, who is back in St. Mary Mead. We find out that she's, I guess, tragically a widow, although maybe not so tragically for Dolly because she seems to be living it up. <laughs> Indeed, yes. She's traveling the world, visiting her four children, her nine grandchildren. There is this real delight to her that she gets to visit these foreign countries. I was upset when I heard that Colonel Bantry had passed away, but she seems to at least be burying 
that sadness or to have moved on at this point in her, you know, in, in her also sensible English sort of a way. She brings, I think, that no-nonsense spirit to what's happened at Gossington Hall as well. Right, because she sold it. Mm-hmm. And not only did she sell it, but she retained a small cottage, the East Lodge on the property. Might seem like she'd be sad that she sold the house. Instead, she seems completely delighted because she doesn't have to worry about the giant house. She doesn't even care when she goes up there because she is invited back there for this intimate tea before, you know, the arrangements are sorted for this fate. And, you know, they've done all these massive, massive renovations to the house. And she doesn't care. She seems kind of just very curious. I thought of her as the anti-Amy Folliot. That would be mm-hmm. uh, yeah. a key character in Dead Man's Folly. Similarly, forced to exit her substantial residence and live nearby. And I don't think she took it quite as well as Dolly Bantry did. <laughs> by the way, it is the first time that I was struck by this thought, but Dolly Bantry has Ariadne Oliver energy to her. She does. Right? It, she yeah. serves a, a, the same purpose. And especially in these later Christie's, I think you often need this character because it's not coming from either Miss Marple or Poirot at this point who get a little crotchety. <laughs> um, you need the the somewhat wacky yet likable and also perceptive side character who we've come to know and love to inject the book with some humor. Right. The only thing that she cares about when she goes up to the big house is that people keep asking her about the body in the library. I'll read out the exchange between her and Ella Zielinski. Fast forward if you haven't read The Body in the Library, because this will spoil (laughs) a major plot point. But Ella asks, wasn't there a body in the library? Which, by the way, is no longer a library because they've broken down the wall between the library and Colonel Bantry's former study and made it this grand music room. But they're sitting in it during this tea and Ella Zielinski comes in and she's chowing down on some sandwiches. And she says, on the hearth rug right there, wasn't it? Yes, said Mrs. Bantry. That was the place. So there was a murder. Mrs. Bantry shook her head. The murder didn't take place here. The girl who had been killed was brought here and planted in this room. She had nothing to do with us. (laughs) And then she also goes on to describe that fabulous opening scene from that book. I I loved the callback. You know, we get lots of great callbacks to previous Miss Marples because when Miss Marple is going on her little field trip to the development, she also reminisces about the Protheros from Murder at the Vicarage, about Griselda and her son who's now into train which is something that was brought up in 450 from Paddington. We're going to get a Sir Henry Clithering and the Tuesday Club Murders reference later on. It's just, there's, there's a lot of good continuity in this book as to Miss Marple. Terrific continuity, actually. So later, when the fate is actually happening, Dolly, of course, attends. And she's invited to this exclusive little reception that happens on this upstairs landing, which has also, of course, been renovated from when Dolly lived there. And it used to just be a regular second-story landing, but they've torn down walls and hollowed out this sort of grand reception space where all these people are able to mill about. And as you know, people come up the staircase, Marina Gregg and Jason Rudd are standing there to greet them and it's all very glamorous and exciting. And Dolly is standing there and she sees Marina Gregg speaking to Heather Badcock who is involved in the St. John Ambulance which is why she gets invited to this little exclusive gathering. And of course Heather is extremely excited because oh my god she's meeting her idol Marina Gregg and she then starts telling her that story that we've already heard and chattering away to Marina about that 
that one time that she was sick and she met Marina. And shortly thereafter, we are told that Heather's drink is spilled somehow, and Marina hands Heather her own drink, which is a daiquiri. It's her favorite drink. Um, And she says that she hasn't touched it, so Heather should just drink that one. And Heather takes it and drinks it and promptly dies (laughs) about two seconds later. There's a big commotion at the fate. Cut to the next day. Um, Miss Knight being as irritating as she is, doesn't tell Miss Marple about a call from Dolly. That's a Kathy Bates move. It's, yes, it's a minor it, <laughs> one, but it's a Kathy. It's controlling. It's, it's controlling. It's super controlling. And our dear Jane is not happy about that. The Dark Marple. Dark Marple. You do not uh, mess with Dark Marple. So Miss Marple very rightly realizes that Dolly is probably right on her way over. And sure enough, who shows up several minutes later is Dolly Bantry. She tells Miss Marple what happened at the fate. She doesn't know that it's a murder, but she thinks it's a murder. And Dolly thought something was wrong before the murder happened. Because when Heather Badcock was talking to Marina, Marina had this haunted look on her face. She said that she looked like the Lady of Shalott. Doom had come upon her. You know, the curse had come upon her. And, and so she's... Dolly, yeah, Dolly says the doom has come upon me. She misquotes, but that's because the look is a look of doom. But something changed and she had this look of doom all of a sudden, but she can't figure out what that was. Right. The only thing that Dolly could see from where she was standing was that it appeared that Marina's eye line was looking at the wall where the only thing that was on the wall that she could figure was, you know, a painting of Madonna and Child. I think we we should know that there's considerable doubt thrown on exactly what Marina was staring at over the course of the book, because obviously, I mean, everyone makes the same leap after this sequence of events in which Heather Badcock is murdered, which is, well, she drank Marina's drink. So obviously, Obviously, Marina was the intended victim. Right. And also, who would want to murder Heather Badcock? She didn't have any money. You know, no one really cared about her. She was kind of a bore. Uh, versus Marina, the glamorous movie star. She has to have some enemies. There's just, you know, there's a lot more intrigue around her. So everyone makes that leap immediately. And then it becomes this question of, well, what was that look and what could have caused it? And what was she looking at? And given the blocking, which Christy is very specific about and evokes quite well, given the blocking on that second story landing, she could have been looking at that Madonna and Child painting. She could have been looking at someone coming up the stairs. She could have been looking at the photographer who was employed for the day to take pictures. It's a guessing game that is played many a time throughout this book. But Dolly, from the beginning, says, I think what she was looking at, what she had to have been looking at, was this Madonna and Child painting. Next, we get a visit from our Inspector D'Histoire, who I'm happy to say is more than an Inspector D'Histoire because we have seen him before. This would be Inspector Dermot Craddock who is the Mm -hmm. godson of Sir Henry Clithering, hence our Tuesday Club Murders reference. And we, of course, saw him in 450 from Paddington, where I would just like to point this out, Catherine, but we had a little disagreement at the end of 450 from Paddington as to who Lucy Islesborough ended up with. And you seem to think that it was Dermot Craddock, and I was pretty convinced it was Cedric Crackenthorpe. But we are told in the course of this book that our dear Inspector Craddock is not married. I have to say, I think if Lucy Islesborough wanted to marry Dermot Craddock, she would have done it. So I'm pretty sure Lucy Islesborough is 
somewhat happily married to Cedric Krakenthorpe somewhere in the Marvel. I mean, that's fine, but I would have preferred <laughs> that she, I would have preferred she, you know, form a giant marriage crime solving team with um, Inspector Craddock. That would have been my real, you know, like really like thin man energy there. <laughs> <laughs> no, it would it would have been nice. He is, by the way, at least Chief Inspector Craddock by now. He's been promoted, so he's doing well. And he is immediately very excited that he gets to go to St. Mary Mead and visit oh, Miss Marple. very excited. <laughs> Although he does wonder at first whether or not she's alive. We have lots of charming interactions, actually, between Inspector Craddock and Auntie, as he calls her, Auntie, even though he's not actually her nephew, but they're close at this point. Right, and also he calls, he calls her house headquarters. Yeah, which is really charming. <laughs> So they know for sure that there was poison in that drink that Heather drank. It's a drug called Calmo, which is a rare made-up drug in I the know. Christie verse. She usually also very on point. Very on point. You know, she usually used real drugs, but it's believable. You know, it's believable that there would be this barbiturate drug that all the movie stars and their assistants use. You know, we're told that Gossington Hall is basically drowning in Calmo. Just everyone had packets of it in their back pocket. So the poison itself is not going to be the way that we're going to eliminate any suspects here. No, because Um, everybody pretty much has it. Everyone has it or could have grabbed it out of, you know, a medicine cabinet in any of the six bathrooms that we're told are in the newly renovated Gossington Hall. So, um, uh, I mean, I, I do have to say, um, you know, Christy, Christy was certainly on point with um, Hollywood people and the equivalent of like a Valium. <laughs> One of the strengths of this book is her evocation of the neuroses of a movie star like Marina Gregg and just the milieu of these film industry people in Gossington Hall and working on this film project. It's not overdone. It's entertainingly done. I found it quite believable, actually. Oh, yeah. All, all of the, All of the people, they're not caricatures, actually. No, you can tell. I mean, it's funny. By this point, somewhat against her will, she had experience with film types because, you know, she had had a a couple of high-profile films, including uh, Murder, she said, made from her books. And she obviously, you know, was writing what she knew. Right. And so Miss Marple and Craddock, like, start talking again at the headquarters. And she also charmingly starts buying all of these movie fan mags <laughs> to read up on Marina. Because, again, as we've already said, Scotland Yard just assumes that was the intended target, as does every single other person in the book. Um, including Miss Marple. Including Miss Marple. Um, Marina won't get out of her bed. She's in shock. Um, Prostrate. Yeah, probably on a lot of Calmo herself. <laughs> you know, we find out that Marina has four children. Three had been adopted. And one she'd given birth to after not being able to give birth for years and years and years. So we find out that, you know, somewhere around 12 years ago or so, she had given birth to this child that she had been so incredibly excited for. But uh, apparently the child was born with, you know, severe developmental challenges and possibly other deformities. Um, It's not entirely made clear what was wrong with the child, child had to be put in an institution in the U.S. and then Marina had a nervous breakdown. It interrupted her acting career and she was basically saved by the love of Jason Rudd who just took care of her. 
Right. So after this, we get a sequence of investigatory activities where everyone tells more or less exactly the same story of what happened at that party as everyone's coming up the stairs and Marina and Jason are greeting all their guests, you know, the spilled drink, Heather drinking it, Heather dying, et cetera, et cetera. What we do discover is that the photographer at that party, Margot Bentz, she is actually one of Marina's adopted children. She feels very abandoned by Marina because when Marina got pregnant, she essentially abandoned them. She put them with other families. She provided for their future education. They weren't abandoned in a financial way, but as to emotion, she felt that Marina poured all of her maternal devotion into this unborn child. And then of course, we know what happened when that child was born and that she you know, left these three adopted children by the wayside rather cruelly. And she feels very misused by that, but she insists that she did not kill Marina. Um, She just wanted to see her. That's why she took the job. She is actually a photographer. She wasn't impersonating a photographer or anything. And that there's nothing more than that. Right. And that the other two adopted children are in the United States. Yeah, you know, spoiler, but neither of those two adopted children is going to pop up at the end. We'll talk about this in a bit, but it goes back to the sort of weird adoption thing that we talked about before. Yes, this figures very much into Agatha Christie's weird, weird relationship with and opinions on adoption, which we will talk about when we get to Stuck in This Time. We learn through Dolly Bantry, actually, that Ella Zelinsky, the secretary, is making phone calls in a public telephone box. Mm-hmm. And Dolly finds that suspicious because why wouldn't Ella just use the phone in her office in Gossington Hall? And Ella lies and says, oh, the phones are down. But Dolly calls <laughs> to Gossington <laughs> Hall and they're like, hello, Gossington Hall. <laughs> and so that was a dumb lie. So she knows that something is going on with Ella. And very soon after this, and we see this happening, actually, we're with Ella as this happens. It's definitely a visceral murder scene, especially for Christy. She uses an atomizer for allergies. She seems to have hay fever and she's sneezing a lot. And she realizes too late that there's a smell of bitter almonds in the atomizer. And she has unfortunately inhaled a whole bunch of cyanide and she dies. Yeah. And then Marina's Italian butler, Giuseppe, also dies, shot twice. And we see that happen too, which is, again, very odd in a Christie. Not that she hasn't done it before. She's done it a number of times before, but it adds to the interesting tonal quality of this book, which is a little uneven. We're actually very close to the end of the book at this point. And we've had three murders by three different methods, none of which seem to have an obvious reason. And somewhere in the middle of this, Marina gets threatening messages saying she's going to die. And then she almost drinks a cup of coffee that's later analyzed. It's found to contain arsenic. So what's going on here, Kemper? All right. Let's talk about the world as it actually is by way of a bunch of clues. In this book, again, this goes to the rather, I think, simplistic puzzle mystery that Christy created here. Most of these clues are upfront. So it really is possible to solve this thing very early. Early on. Our first clue is a timing clue in a way. It's a much different timing clue from what I think we're used to seeing in Christie because it's on a very macro scale. And it's nothing like what we see in, for example, a novel like Evil Under the Sun, where the timing comes down to the minute. But we know that Heather Badcock met Marina about 12 or so years ago when she so very thoughtlessly snuck out of her sick bed, sick with chicken pox or flu or something. Those are the two specific diseases that have been name-checked 
before we get to our resolution. So something like that. And we find out that Marina had her child who was born with all those developmental issues about 11 or 12 years ago. So our deduction here is given that they happened around the same time, could these two incidents be related? And I think we have two supplemental clues to back this up. Yeah, clue number two, the Missy Elliott clue. Is it worth it? Let me work it. I put my thing down, flip it and reverse it. Flip it and reverse it. Flip it and reverse it. Uh, We're told that Marina probably or likely wasn't listening to Heather Badcock's babble as she went on and on and on with her story of getting out of her sickbed and putting on all that makeup and meeting Marina all these years ago. But what if we flip and reverse that assumption? What if Heather Badcock was saying is uh, not just the key to solving the mystery, the fact that Marina was listening to it absolutely intently is in fact the key. Things are so often not what they seem in Christie. Can't make any assumptions. All right. And then clue number three, we talked a little bit about this, is Dolly's assertion that Marina was looking at the Madonna and child picture when she got that frozen look on her face, the Lady of Shalott look. And we've known Dolly for a while now. So our deduction here should be, you know, even though Dolly is a little wacky, a little bit of an Ariadne Oliver she probably really was looking at that painting and we should think very carefully about why looking at a mother and child tableau would upset Marina so much. And we're told specifically that it's a laughing Madonna and child too. This is a, Mm -hmm. you know, a mother and child in the throes of joy together. So that's, Interesting. And if you don't mind, Catherine, I'd love to just move right on into clue number four, which involves a little bit of a little bit of research. You know how I love some research. This clue goes to the heart of the controversy surrounding this book. Because what do we know about contagious diseases that may cause the sort of developmental issues that Marina's child had? Well, Mm, measles. This may this may count as specialized knowledge, but the irony here is that it's really not specialized knowledge because way too many readers were actually all too familiar with what was going on here due to two high-profile cases that had happened in real life. And this is what I think a lot of people think about when the mirror cracked from side to side is referenced. The Hollywood actress Jean Tierney, who most people probably know from the fabulous noir film Laura. She is the eponymous Laura. What difference does it make what I say? You've made up your mind I'm guilty. I love that movie, actually. One of my favorite noirs. She was a very successful Hollywood actress who in 1943 gave birth to a daughter named Daria, who was born premature, weighing only a little more than three pounds and who required a total blood transfusion. Daria was deaf, partially blind with cataracts and had a lot of other developmental challenges. And the reason that this happened is that Tierney had contracted German measles or rubella early in her pregnancy. And back then, before the German measles vaccine existed, as it of course does now, doctors advised pregnant women to avoid crowds in their first trimester for that very reason. But when Tierney was pregnant, it was wartime. And she actually appeared at the Hollywood Canteen, which was a very famous converted barn where movie stars and other celebrities performed for military service personnel while they were on leave, sort of a USO kind of a thing. And uh, apparently on the night in question, uh, Jean Tierney signed autographs, she mingled with the crowd, and she shook hands with people. And then days later, she came down with German measles. And months after that, Daria was born extremely premature. She eventually had to be institutionalized. Interestingly, Howard Hughes 
is said to have paid for all of her medical bills, apparently for the rest of her life. And Daria um, actually did not pass away until 2010 at the age of 66. You know, I believe she was institutionalized for her entire life. But two years after the ordeal of this birth, Jean Tierney was at a tennis party and a fellow partygoer in the women's branch of the Marines came up to her and said that they had met at the Hollywood canteen. And then she just asked her outright, did you get German measles? And of course, Jean Tierney said, yes, I did get German measles. And the woman admitted that she had had German measles herself, but she had broken quarantine to see Tierney because she was such a fan. And according to this blog, where I'm getting a lot of this very specific information, it's called Lisa's History Room. I just want to give it a little shout out. It's Elisa Waller Rogers, spelled as you would imagine, dot com. But according to this blog, I'm quoting now from Lisa, Jean was dumbstruck. That woman had given her the measles. She was the sole cause of Daria's disabilities. Jean said nothing. She just turned and walked away. So obviously the confrontation in real life with Jean Tierney did not end as dramatically as it did in Christie's version. But, you know, the other thing that I'll note about Jean Tierney is that she had significant mental health struggles throughout her life, uh, which is another similarity between her and Marina Gregg. You know, at one point she stepped onto a ledge 14 stories above the ground in her mother's New York City apartment. This was actually years and years after the ordeal of her daughter's birth. She was a manic depressive. She herself was institutionalized for a time. Apparently she received enough electroshock therapy to impair her memory. So there's that. Now we can right. see why this perhaps wasn't something that the women's magazines were super eager to serialize. The only other thing I just want to note, because everyone mentions Jean Tierney, but, and I'm getting this from Janet Morgan, actually, there is actually another real life version of these events that Christy potentially could have known about, or just it could have been in the back of her head. And that was involving the Dutch royal family. Apparently, Princess Christina of the Netherlands, who's the youngest of Queen Juliana's four daughters, was born nearly blind in 1947 as a result of her mother contracting rubella while she was pregnant. And then I'm getting this off of Wikipedia. But with medical treatment and custom eyeglasses, her vision improved to a point that she could attend school and live a relatively normal life. That apparently was very much publicized in Britain. So that was something that Christy may have heard about. Maybe she heard about Jean Tierney. She herself, because this became a point of contention, a lot of especially American readers uh, wrote in quite angrily about this and said, this feels like you're ripping off Jean Tierney's tragedy and why would you do this? This was not a mystery I enjoyed because of that. She claimed that she had no knowledge of the Jean Tierney tragedy. Well, a lot of women listening to this will know this. When I was about to turn 30, I had gone to a checkup and the doctor was like a little bit patronizing and was asking me about my, let's say, romantic life. She essentially insisted that I get an MMR booster shot because I was about to turn 30. The assumption was, you know, that easily I could just decide randomly to get pregnant or get pregnant accidentally or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And she was insistent that she did it to all of her patients in that age range that you had to get sort of revaccinated for measles, mumps, and rubella because you don't want this to happen. To this day, it's certainly a very real thing that you're warned about if you if you're planning on getting pregnant, certainly. And even if you aren't, apparently. Well, and do you know the name of the eye doctor in Australia who discovered that rubella in a pregnant woman could cause birth defects in her child was? 
Could you take a guess as to what his last name might have been? Greg with two G's, mm. Dr. Norman Greg. Although, interestingly, a few years before she was writing this novel, she wrote an original play, The Unexpected Guest, which we will be covering on our next Patreon episode, www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. And when that play was produced on the West End, the director's name was Hubert Gregg with two Gs. So perhaps the name was actually inspired by this director who she knew. Perhaps it was inspired by this doctor who contributed to our knowledge of rubella as an infectious disease. Or perhaps she became aware of the coincidence of these two names while she was writing and couldn't resist immortalizing the name in this very novel. I actually don't see a reason to not believe Christie that she believed she hadn't heard of either of these events, or at least of the Jean Tierney one, because that seems to be the one that she right. was asked about a lot more because it was the more tragic one also. And I think it's the one that people took offense to more than you know the Dutch royal family. I would tend to think that it's something that was just in the ether and that as she was thinking on you know murder mystery plots and she landed on this, perhaps it contributed in an indirect way, even though I do highly doubt that she sat down and thought, ooh, I know, I'm going to take this tragic story of Jean Tierney's and make a murder mystery out of it. I don't think she did that. And I actually believe her that she didn't do that. But do I think that there could have been some osmosis there that happens, even just like culturally? Sure. Like I find it hard to believe that it didn't, you know? Yeah. I mean, you pick stuff up. Like you could have been walking past a newsstand and seen like a fan magazine headline. I think that that happens a lot, that it's not necessarily conscious, but you do pick up things around you. And, you know, it's also why sometimes there are like accusations of like plagiarism, et cetera. And -hmm. it's not intentional, right? We want memory to be a recording device. Like we want, you know, human memory to function in the same way that a recording device does. And it just doesn't. There's actually, to, to plug a podcast that doesn't need any plugging, Malcolm Gladwell, his Revisionist History podcast, he has an entire episode that I believe is entitled Free Brian Williams. And it's about the whole debacle of Brian Williams's Oh yeah, I've listened to memory <laughs> in the helicopter in in Iran or Iraq or wherever it was. But you know, poor Brian Williams. I mean, he was raked over the coals, and it really dealt a blow to his career that he he was lying. He was saying something happened that hadn't happened. But Gladwell's point was the way memory works and suggestion. We really are judging him too harshly oh. on that because it's not as simple as we all want it to be. I mean, I know a lot of our listeners because they've either mentioned it to me on Twitter or elsewhere are big fans of You're Wrong About. And the entire premise of the podcast You're Wrong About is that stories that we think we know the details of are often misremembered. And so is revisionist history, yeah. really, although in a very different Malcolm Gladwellish kind right. of way. <laughs> <laughs> I've listened to all of those episodes, Kemper, and you know, I think my preference is definitely towards you're wrong about. Yeah. I think Malcolm Gladwell will do just fine without yes, our ringing endorsement. <laughs> I know. Um. So once we know that, which again, a lot of people knew, and now I, I, I don't have to be so cryptic about the issues that early readers had with Christie's first draft. When Christie submitted her first draft to publishers, I believe she had Heather Badcock referencing the fact that she had German measles in that initial story that she tells to Miss Marple. And the readers at the publisher and her US agents were like, I not only did I know who did it, but... 
I knew who did it before the murder happened. Like the one woman reading it was like, well, clearly this woman ruined someone's life by the fact that she, you know, had rubella and I'm guessing the movie star was pregnant and there we go. It was just too easy to solve. So she had to hide the German measles reference until later on in the novel. And Christy was actually very uncomfortable with doing that. And she wrote to Edmund Cork that she didn't think it was quite playing fair, but she had to because otherwise it was just too easy to solve. Well, I mean, it's already like, because she mentions the point that she had to like put pancake makeup on to leave the house. So you know that whatever she had was affecting, like, it's not like just like you were pale. It's that something else was going on. So like, I mean, the assumption is you had some kind of pox basically something that was that involved spotting of the face or or marring of the face yeah and that's probably her way of playing fair actually because i don't yeah. think she was comfortable with not giving any sort of a clue as to german measles specifically but she couldn't say it because once she did due to these real life cases uh it would just became too obvious it's very rare for christy to submit a manuscript and be told this isn't hard enough this isn't clever enough to solve. So I think that's really interesting. She also very easily could have had Miss Marple attend this fate or party herself. I mean, it's happening at Gossington Hall, but Miss Marple doesn't attend. And that sort of ties in with the fact that Miss Marple's a little bit more homebound, you know, and less active than, than she used to be. But it's also very convenient because it allows for all of the recountings of what happened and what was said at the party to be secondhand and thirdhand, and I think in some cases even fourthhand. That way, there's discrepancies. You know, we find out that Jason Rudd specifically lied and said that, oh, she said she had the flu. And Dolly Bantry misremembered and she said chicken pox. But it really was German measles. If Miss Marple had been there, she would have heard what she said and she would have solved it immediately. So that also, I think, is her way of creating enough obfuscation for purposes of a novel-length mystery. That is obviously the crucial clue. And we don't have to spend too much time on this, but I think just to give the novel its due, there are three supplemental clues that also really sealed the deal for Marina as murderer. One of them I really appreciated because it's a close reading clue, which we haven't gotten in a while. And I think some of Christie's best clues are close reading clues. And that one I'll call the danger of using pronouns with unclear antecedents. I sound like a grammar teacher. But there's this <laughs> seemingly random sequence thrown into the book between this woman, Gladys, who was a server at the fate, and then Cherry Baker, who we haven't even mentioned yet. We'll talk about her a little bit, I think, in the rankings. But she's really tangential to the mystery plot, which is why we haven't mentioned her. But she's a sort of cleaner who is working at Miss Marple's house. And she is speaking with Gladys in, in this scene. And Gladys says that she saw Heather and Marina interacting at the fate and talking, as so many people did. And then she goes on to tell Cherry about when she saw Heather's drink get spilled, Gladys says, I'm almost sure she did it on purpose. And Cherry's like, oh, that does seem weird. And, you know, as readers, we're meant to assume she means Heather. Like, why would Heather spill her own drink on purpose? That definitely seems to be what Gladys is intimating there. But the deduction is not to assume anything in Christie. The she who Gladys is referring to is Marina, not Heather. Right. So Gladys saw Marina spill Heather's drink on purpose. And Miss Marple realizes this, which is why she whisks Gladys away to Bournemouth, lest she become murder victim number four. Always resourceful, our Miss Marple, even in these latter days. So I, I appreciated that extra little clue. Yeah. And I mean, related to that, obviously, is the access because <laughs> who clearly had access to the poisoned drink? It was the person who poisoned it. 
the person whose drink it was. I mean, the person who was holding the drink most of the time before it killed someone. And the simplicity of that is pretty brilliant. All Marina had to do was dump a bunch of Calmo. We know she's got it coming out of her ears, basically. She had to dump that into her cocktail, shove Heather, thereby spilling Heather's drink, which Gladys saw, and then offer her own drink to Heather. It's actually very simple. And, you know, for our final clue, Catherine, (laughs) I, I, I hope you don't think that I was going to neglect to highlight the fact. You know, Kemper, it's hard to get past this one too. (laughs) It's hard to get past this one. We've been doing this podcast for a while and I'm not sure which clue actually we've gotten more if it's never underestimate the help or this one, but in a novel with its fair share of actors, we certainly have many of them here among this Hollywood milieu. Who is the actoriest of all these actors? That would, of course, be the movie star. That would, of course, be Marina Gregg. She is a big old actor. She totally did it. Come on. The actor did it. And that's also why she overdid it as an American actress would, with all those fake threatening messages, which of course she wrote to herself, and the arsenic, which she put in her coffee. Oh, actors. To our actor friends, we love you. Really. We don't <laughs> think know, you're as, all murderers. <laughs> yeah, keep, keep in mind, we're doing this podcast from LA. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and we certainly have our share of actor friends. So we, do, we, don't, we, do. we don't think you're all murderers. We promise. <laughs> well, we've pretty much solved all of this by way of clues, but we have a little bit more to go. And honestly, all the other loose ends that we have to tie up here... I find extremely unfortunate. And I think they make this a weaker book than it would be without them. I wish we could just end things on, okay, now we know why Heather was killed. We're good to go. But what else do we need to tie up here, Catherine? Well, Ella and Giuseppe were essentially both blackmailers. Ella kind of was just blindly calling people to try to figure it out until she landed on the right person, basically. Right. It's like she called up everyone who was at the party until she finally got the right person. And then she promptly got murdered. And she was also sneezing, by the way, because of her allergies so that people were like, um, Ella, is that you? Right. Maybe don't do that. She's drawn to be pretty clever. And yet... Boy, it's not like she's exactly playing investigator. She's like... (laughs) She's literally just going to a public phone box and saying, I know you did it. What? It's absurd. I don't understand why we need her to be doing that and killed other than perhaps to pad things out a little bit. Yeah, and Giuseppe actually was blackmailing Marina. He knew. He was a little bit more of a targeted blackmailer and she eventually shot him. Yeah. Then, okay, we have to talk about this, unfortunately. Oh boy, Catherine. There's a reveal very, very late, like literally the last chapter, I think, of the book that Alfred Badcock, Heather's husband, was Marina's first husband. Yeah, you know, Marina's multiple marriages do get referenced early on in the novel. And we're told that her first marriage was to a nobody and it barely counted. So throwaway reference, I suppose. Beware the throwaway reference in a Christie. But 
it's so pointless because Miss Marple mentions the fact that Alfred and Marina were married as to why it's so important to get to the bottom of things and clear Alfred's name. But Alfred is already under suspicion simply by virtue of being Heather's husband. Plus, Christy could have easily just gone to the well of how important it is to clear away the cloud of guilt for everyone here who's been suspected of murder. Not just Alfred, but Lola Brewster, Margot Benz, Hardwick Fenn, etc. So it's not like she needed Alfred to be Marina's first husband to motivate Miss Marple to solve this thing. And it just defies belief that the woman who played such a horrible role in the life of Marina Gregg happened to also marry Marina Gregg's first husband. And he never said anything about it during the course of the investigation. There's just no reason whatsoever for it. It's a total coincidence. It's impossible to believe. And John Kern actually makes some funny parallels to other Christie's. I'll only highlight one of them, which is 450 from Paddington. So if you haven't yet read that book, fast forward a little bit. But we had that weird beat in 450 from Paddington where the young son's friend, he had a French mother and the French mother happened to be the long lost French woman that everyone was wondering where she is and what happened to her. And we (laughs) find out at the end, like, oh, it happens to be your friend's mom just by coincidence. And I was like, what? Really? Why? Who cares? You don't, it's just needless and it cheapens the book. Yeah, this is phenomenally bad here because given the deductions we made on another book for this same thing, it's like, why would you bring it back again? Don't bring it back again, please. For anyone who hasn't read Murder in Mesopotamia, also fast forward a little bit, but I suppose maybe did Marina Gregg not even recognize Alfred Badcock being her first husband? Possibly. It doesn't really seem like she recognized him or cared. So it's another situation of people who used to be married not recognizing each other like we had in Murder in Mesopotamia. It's just absurd. It's like, does Alfred Badcock even remember that he was married to Marina? Like that well, that's, doesn't... that's weirder. That's the weirder I, it's, one. It's just silly and pointless. And, and it's, it's, it was not preserved in any of the adaptations, which is perhaps a seamless segue into the uh, three adaptations that exist for this Well, we should mention that Marina does kill herself. And Marina kills herself. She takes a whole bunch of Calmo and she can't really live with what happened. I mean, she has killed (laughs) three people at this point, so... Fair. I like how it happens so late that you just forgot and we're about to gloss over it. I know. It's really true. Uh, You know, Christy handles it well and, and, you know, Miss Marple is there and it's a very somber moment. And that's where we get those final lines of the Lady of Shalott poem, which work really well, actually. Don't touch that dial. We'll be back in a moment with the rest of our episode. We just wanted to take a moment to ask you, our dear listeners, for a favor. If you haven't already done so, we would very much appreciate it. If you take a moment to, you know, give us a rating or review wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really helps the podcast out because ratings and reviews make it much easier for other Christy fans such as yourselves to find our podcast. And the more ratings and reviews we get, the more people we can reach. It should take you a matter of seconds and lucky you we're going to provide you with those seconds right now so go to it thank you so much and now back to our regularly scheduled programming
let's just talk a little bit about the three adaptations that exist for this novel. And I suspect we will be doing most of our talking about the first of these adaptations, because that would be the 1980 extravaganza known as The Mirror Cracked. This was a feature film that was released in the U.S. in December of 1980. And it was actually produced by John Brayburn and Richard Goodwin, who were the producers of Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile. They would go on to do Evil Under the Sun as well. So big, big Christie producers. Guy Hamilton is the director. He would also go on to direct Evil Under the Sun. This movie is starring... So many, so many heavy hitters. First of all, we have Angela Lansbury as Miss Marple. If that weren't big enough, we have Tony Curtis as Marty Fenn. That would be the Americanized Ardwick Fenn from the book and how. We have Rock Hudson as Jason Rudd, Kim Novak as Lola Brewster, and drumroll, please, Elizabeth Taylor as Marina Gregg. Apparently, this was the last movie she made that she starred in. And also, interestingly, uh, this was supposed to be Natalie Wood's role. She was the first choice for Marina, but there were disagreements over cast billing and the portrayal of her character. So she ultimately turned it down. And we would be remiss if we did not mention that there is a non-speaking cameo by an extraordinarily young Pierce Brosnan. He is actually playing opposite Elizabeth Taylor in the movie within a movie that is being shot in the course of this mystery. There's a lot of fun had with the movie-going hijinks here. So some little tidbits that I learned, of course, from our good friend Mark Aldridge in his book, Agatha Christie on Screen. Angela Lansbury was set to play Miss Marple as early as April 1979, and she had the Christie estate's approval. I'm positive that her turn as Salome Otterborn in Death on the Nile had you know, more than a little to do with that. Right. And the fact that she's Angela Lansbury, because she's fabulous. And the film was actually, this is, this is not so fun of a fact, but the film was then majorly delayed due to an incident that occurred, which many of you probably saw dramatized recently on the latest uh, season of The Crown. Y- yikes. <laughs> yeah. So John Brayburn was involved in the explosion on board Lord Mountbatten's boat in Ireland at the hands of the IRA. Lord Mountbatten himself was killed, of course, but also on board were his daughter and son-in-law, and his son-in-law was John Brayburn. And John Brayburn's mother was on the boat and his two sons were also on the boat. So Lord Mountbatten, John Brayburn's mother, and one of his two sons, as well as a crew member, were all killed in that explosion. And then the others were all severely injured. So it wasn't until almost a year later that they were actually in a place to cast the rest of the movie. That was a major delay, but apparently he was determined to make it happen. And uh, Mark has some quotes to that effect from Matthew Pritchard, actually, who I think was very, very struck by his determination in the face of all of that. And apparently the movie was dubbed Battle of the Bitches by Sunday People. (laughs) Gotta love the inherent misogyny of fetishizing woman-on-woman conflict. I Uh, I would hope that it probably wouldn't have gotten that nickname these days, but you never know. I think it's actually worth reading out Mark's commentary on it because it's a reasoned analysis of this movie. This is what he says. 
Given the talent both behind and in front of the camera, it is difficult to pinpoint the precise reason this adaptation falls flat. It lacks flair, a difficult feat for an adaptation with such a good heritage. The lack of an exotic background means that there is little distraction for the audience from the somewhat leaden dialogue filled with well-worn jokes and cursory exposition. Perhaps there was the expectation that the star cast would be enough to elevate it in an unexciting script that offers much Hollywood snark, but little in the way of terribly interesting or original dialogue or narrative devices. Added to the woes is the fact that the film struggles to know what it wants to say about the period it depicts. For her original novel, Christie located the story firmly in the 1960s, since it includes Miss Marple musing on the new council estate that has been built near to the village. And in a move that may surprise critics who wrongly assume Christie to be a reactionary, Miss Marple points out that people must live somewhere and that progress is inevitable. This commentary on the dying days of old village life runs through the novel, but is dispensed within the film, which moves the action back to 1953. This change of period results in a safe, toothless, and rather dull depiction of St. Mary Mead with the production appearing to have nothing to say about Britain at the time. I think he's right. I mean, this is as much of a star-studded cast as we got in Death on the Nile and Murder on the Orient Express, but the movie's kind of boring. Yeah, it's not very good. (laughs) A bit of a drag. I think your attention gets diverted very easily. I certainly found myself checking Twitter Yeah. I mean, what's also interesting, Angela Lansbury is completely underused because we know how in a few short years, she would go on to play an amateur sleuth to delightful effect for many years, obviously in Murder, she wrote, but she does not sing as Miss Marple. And I think part of that is actually the makeup and costuming. It's really interesting. Angela Lansbury, Tony Curtis, and Rock Hudson were all born in the same year. They're all born in 1925. So they were all around 55 at the time of this filming. Uh, Angela Lansbury looks about 30 years older than them. She's made to look 30 years older than them. She's in this terrible wig. She's got really bad makeup on. And then she's doing some distracting things like she smokes cigarettes in some scenes and she also talks out of the side of her mouth a lot it feels like a caricature rather than a character mark actually talks about this how it doesn't have the same innate charm and bustling arrogance that the audience had seen in ustinov's poirot it's not as fun she's not allowed to have as much fun and we know that angela lansbury is capable of having a ton of fun and mark the last thing i will quote from him is that he made the point that this is one of those movies where it seems as if everyone on screen is having more fun than the audience. Like, I'll bet they had a lot of fun making this movie. And we do have a lot of really fun, catty dialogue between Elizabeth Taylor and Kim Novak. I'm looking lovely as always. Of course, there are fewer lights on than usual. In fact, any fewer, and I'd need a seeing eye dog. Oh, I shouldn't bother to buy one, dear. In that wig, you could play Lassie. Same adorable sense of humor. And I'm so glad to see you not only kept your gorgeous figure, but you've added so much to it. What are you doing here so early, dear? I thought the plastic surgery seminar was in Switzerland. So do tell. How does it feel to be back after being away so long. What are you supposed to be, a birthday cake? Too bad everybody's had a piece. Right, can we have a big smile, please, ladies? Chin up, darling. Both of them. Lola, dear, you know there are really only two things I dislike about you. Really? What are they? Your face. And it's fun to see that, but 
the movie just doesn't hang together. And, you know, apparently the idea was that they were going to alternate between Peter Ustinov as Poirot movies and Angela Lansbury as Miss Marple movies in the 80s. Right. And this movie actually did okay. It didn't do that badly. It did well at the box office and it was even reviewed. It, it certainly wasn't panned. But Evil Under the Sun, for as much affection as we have for that movie now, it's really become a cult classic. Evil Under the Sun did not do well in the box office and that really killed that idea. And I think, you know, had this movie turned out better, perhaps that could have contributed to continuing on with Miss Marples. But I'm glad that Angela Lansbury ended up being free (laughs) to do what she did in Murder, She Wrote, because this is extremely subpar compared to her fantastic work in that series. Yeah, you know, you hate to say it given the cast, but I like would not exactly go recommend that people run out and watch it. What you should do is Google Elizabeth Taylor, the mirror cracked hat so that you can get a visual of this flower bouquet of a hat that she wears to the fate because it is, you just have to see it to appreciate it. But you can get that in in two dimensions. You really don't have to watch the movie for that. There was a a listener who I was emailing with recently, and um, he was telling me some of his top five and bottom five of Christie adaptations overall. We were discussing this movie because I had just watched it. And the one thing that he did say in this movie's favor, and it's an excellent point, is that among the three adaptations that exist of this book, by far the best frozen look, which is such a key component of this story, the best frozen look is delivered by Elizabeth Taylor. Her look of doom and horror is excellent. It's excellent. It actually gave me goosebumps when I watched it. That's the other thing. No one's bad in this movie. It's just that the movie doesn't work. Elizabeth Taylor is, you know, a great actress. Like she's right. she's excellent in that moment. So it, it has flashes of brilliance, but it just doesn't all work. And it's funny because I didn't even put together that Guy Hamilton was the same director as Evil Under the Sun. But when I was listening to the repartee between Kim Novak and Elizabeth Taylor, I was like, wow, this is exactly like what happens in Evil Under the Sun between Maggie Smith and Diane. Diana Rigg. But because there's just a lightness and a silliness and a froth to mm-hmm. that movie, it just works. There, there's an effervescence to that movie where dialogue could, like that can really shine, whereas it just doesn't here. So it's, yeah. it's a missed opportunity. It's a real missed opportunity. That's Sometimes like the that does adaptation. happen with mega casts though, too. Yeah, it's like the casting sucks the energy out of the production as a whole. You know, the parts are so great that the sum can't possibly be greater than they are when you put them all together and the sum actually ends up being less. That really does happen. But it, it makes me appreciate what they pulled off with Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile because... Right. And even like even recently, fun. like Knives Out kind of pulled off a surprisingly... Mm-hmm. It's a high wire act to do that. Well... Yeah, no, it's true. So the second adaptation is our beloved BBC Joan Hickson version Mm -hmm. of the story. That aired on the 27th of December in 1992. It was the last episode, the very last episode of the series, 12 of 12 Marple novels filmed. They, of course, did all the novels. Filming on this began in early 1992 when Joan Hickson was 85 years old. And I'm getting this from Mark Aldridge once again, but they had to use cue cards, apparently, to the side of the camera because at this point, Joan Hickson 
was having trouble remembering her lines. And Matthew Pritchard is quoted in Mark's book as saying she never complained, though. She was a, a true professional. And Mark actually has this amusing memory of Matthew's that he records in his book, whereby there was this minor character, I think it was a policeman, who was messing up his lines. And he messed up six times in a row. And apparently, finally, Joan Hickson just lost her patience. And she said to him, come along, my dear, this won't do. I'm getting old and I can't be doing with all these takes just because you can't remember your lines. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure she said it extremely charmingly. (laughs) Oh, that's very funny. And after the filming of this, uh, Joan Hickson was allowed to keep Miss Marple's straw bag and hat. I love that. I mean, I I love that. She wore it out all the time word to the sales. And uh, we should also note that Margaret Courtney was uh, the only actor who appears in the 1980 film and this one. In the 1980 version, she was Dolly Bantry. And in this one, she is Miss Knight. By the way, this is the only version that actually includes Miss Knight. Because it's the BBC, they were as faithful as they could be. So they do actually try to adapt that framing story in a way that the other two don't. But even in this version, it's much slighter than it is in the novel. Right. And then, of course, we have the ITV adaptation, too. Oh, yes, we do. This aired in May of 2010 in the fifth season of Six. Uh, this is when Julia McKenzie was playing Miss Marple. For me, the high point of this is that Joanna Lumley is playing Dolly Bantry again. And she actually played Dolly Bantry in The Body in the Library when Geraldine McEwen was Miss Marple. So, you know, now here she is playing opposite Julia McKenzie. I think she's by far the best part of the adaptation. And I mm-hmm. think she might be the only other actor to appear as the same character in more than one episode. I could be wrong about that if anyone can think of anyone else, please contact us and let us know. But I really appreciated that she was there again. And she brings a lot of lightness and joie de vivre to the adaptation, which in general is actually pretty good. You know, this is another case where I I think the ITV adaptation compares pretty well to the other two. Hugh Bonneville is in it. He's Inspector Hewitt, who is the Inspector Craddock of the text. Jason Rudd is super young, which is a little funny. And then the character actor Lindsay Duncan plays Marina. I love her. I've loved her ever since the Frances O'Connor Mansfield Park. Yeah. She plays La- Lady Bertram and Mrs. Price. She plays two sisters who have very different fates. And she's just, she's so good in both roles. It's really not a bad version. And it's pretty faithful, actually. So let's give ITV its due. I think they did a good job on this one. Yeah. There's also adaptations on both Les Petites Mert, which we've mentioned before. In 2017, they did an adaptation. And a Japanese one that I could not find readily. I'd actually looked for it. I don't know if I just missed it someplace, but... I Yeah, I wasn't able to find it either. There's a Japanese language version that was done in 2007. There are actually two other non-English language versions as well. There's a Bengali language version from 2003. And then even more recently than the French language version is a Korean language version, which was done in 2018... This was one of four Miss Marple titles to be adapted as part of a series. And I would love to get my hands on a subtitled copy, if possible. We know how to get the French language version, but any of these other three, I'd be curious to uh, take a look. Yeah, well, we should talk about our rankings. Let's talk about our rankings. As usual, I'd like to start with John Curran uh, in talking about plot. He considers this Christie's second to last pure whodunit. 
the last being a Caribbean mystery, also a, a Miss Marple, since it is possible to figure out who done it. As we've discussed, it might be a little too easy to figure out who done it. So I think we can call this a classic who done it because astute readers will be able to get to the solution without any help. For the fact that Christie had to rework it a little bit and it's a little awkward and definitely on a reread, a little straightforward. I don't think this is one where for plot mechanics, she gets super high marks. It doesn't feel like she's spinning a lot of plates and holding them up in the air and doing her usual magic act. Right. I agree. I mean, it's just, it reads fine. It does. John Curran also notes that this is another novel where we have the motif of one character looking at something and the object of their gaze being significant. You know, she used that in the mysterious affair of styles. And then I think most significantly in death comes as the end, actually, she's going to use it again, actually in a a Miss Marple very soon. And it's a nice trick. It is hard to know what the significance of looking at a Madonna in child painting really is, but I, I mean, it's like the significance is either that it's a mother and child. So you're looking at it because you're thinking about, being a mother and having a child, or you're thinking about Jesus. Those are pretty much the only two possibilities there. They are, but I think it's clever because a Madonna and child, most people think of as a religious painting without thinking necessarily of the humanity of, oh, this is, you know, this isn't like Mary Cassatt, you know? There's a religious gloss over it that might make that a little bit difficult to glean when we're first presented with what the painting is. I think it's clever. I actually also really like that apparently when she was working on her notes for the mystery and she was actually creating the puzzle. At one point, she considered that the painting would depict the death of Nelson. It's another one of these cases where it always seems as if Christie had figured things out before she started plotting, but she really made this stuff up as she went along. It just shows how fast and loose she often was playing, just like as a creative mind. And then obviously the second and third murders are terrible. They're some of the worst, I think, that we've had in any Christie. Like she's had some bad third murders, but both the death of Ella and Giuseppe are just poorly presented and add very, very little to the puzzle mystery. I will be honest. It took me actually a minute when I was doing notes on this, I had to go back and look at those chapters again, because it's not that I didn't know the cause in both, but it's like the mechanics of them are so poorly done. I agree with that. And if you haven't read Peril and House, fast forward 30 seconds. But, you know, let's also give this novel its due, though, that this is an extremely good example of the perspective victim as murderer trope. She pulled it off beautifully in Peril and House. But for much of this novel, it really does seem as if the intended victim is Marina Gregg. And then for Marina Gregg to be the murderer as convincingly as she is, is impressive. She uses that trope a lot, but when she does, it's very effective. And and I appreciate that sleight of hand. So let's talk about plot credibility as well before we rank both of them. You know, for me, the plot credibility goes out the window when we learn that Mr. Badcock was Marina Craig's first <laughs> husband. It's just, and then it's the needlessness that bothers me so much. It's so pointless. I already mentioned that John Curran had the same problem, but you know who also had the same problem with this book? Francis Isles, the critic, aka That's really Anthony, Anthony Barkley. Anthony Barkley. This is That's what he really wrote. funny. Yeah, he made note of this in his contemporary review. Though one could accept a single coincidence concerning that married couple, the second and quite wildly improbable one tends to destroy faith in the story, still more so since it leads nowhere at all. Yep. The blocking of the murder as well. Yes, it helps. I think that Gladys actually saw what was happening, but 
in actuality, it would have been pretty hard for Marina to pull off what she pulls off at this party. There are a lot of nits to pick as to credibility. And then we just get that huge goose egg (laughs) at the end as to Marina's first husband. And I think to me, it adds up to one of the lower plot credibilities that we've had in a while. Yeah, it's also because the drug is made up. What is the mechanism of delivery? We don't know anything about it because it's a made up drug and it's glossed over. It's like, is Marina just standing on the side, grounding down like pills? Or like opening up those little cat, like, you know, the plastic capsules that you can pull apart and then pour the. (laughs) No, I mean, I spent a long time thinking about it because I was like, well, it seems very unlikely to me that this is powder. Right, it Even seems like it was probably a pill, like a tablet. Like a tablet, right? So and does the so, tablet dissolve then? But like, that's a lot of tablets a, to put in a daiquiri. Well, <laughs> a, a dac- it's a daiquiri. Like, how is that dissolve? Like, how long would it take to dissolve? Because the thing about it is that it's the other credibility thing because the actual, the blocking of what her realization is and the blocking of how she hands the drink off makes sense but the blocking of the mechanism of poisoning like does not work agreed i mean where i come down is that i think also why all the different how does marina have all of these different methods of murder that too. I mean, yeah, where I get she gets cyanide for, you know, she's a she's a rich movie star, so I suppose she has slightly easier access to the stuff than a regular person. But yes, I mean that that's why those two murders are so silly too. And I mean the other thing about it and what I wondered, and I again I had to go back and reread it. I wondered if there was any like underlying implication that in fact her husband had killed the witnesses. Just or at least seemed- Giuseppe. I know. I found it hard to believe that Marina had actually shot Giuseppe two times in the back. Yeah. At some level, it almost would have made the plot much more credible if she had killed this woman because Mm -hmm. she snapped and her husband, who loves her dearly, covers it up. Well, perhaps that's a little conspiracy theory here. Maybe he did do that and he's the one who slipped her the calmo. You know, it was a mercy killing. We only have his word for it. The only murder in this that makes sense despite the actual mechanics of it is the first one the the only one that makes sense that marina did it and it makes sense because it's a murder of impulse it's a murder of passion she hears this and she's incensed and she just immediately wants this woman to not be alive anymore and so she does what she does she she snaps we know that she she had i mean she had we know that she had a mental breakdown after the birth disaster so like i completely find that credible it's i just don't find anything after credible i think when it comes to plot the total plot score is out of 20 and i think that this plot score needs to be under 10 (laughs) but i don't think it needs to be much under 10 and i tend to want to give more of the points to plot mechanics because it is a pure whodunit and it is a functional puzzle mystery and it does work perhaps a little too easily or a little too well and i think a lot of our issues with this are properly categorized under credibility i was coming out more like a five or a six on plot mechanics and then something around i think a three at first i had thought a two but there is a lot that is working here as well i don't i don't think we should go too crazy on this but you know something that was coming in at around eight or nine points out of 20 feels right to me yeah i agree with you six for plot mechanics and three for plot credibility 
Let's do six and three. Series long characters, obviously, you know, this is mostly Dolly Bantry, but Dolly Bantry is terrific in this. Oh, uh, it's mostly Miss Marple and Dolly Bantry, of course. Yes. Yeah. And <laughs> Chief Inspector Craddock is very good and charming. Yes, I already said this, but I was shocked by how much this novel is about Miss Marple aging and her effort to combat certain aspects of aging, especially the infantilization of the elderly. There's just a lot of great Miss Marple moments here, even though many of them are painful. On the very first page, Christy writes, active gardening had been forbidden her for some yeah. time now. No, no stooping, no digging, no planting, at most a little light pruning. And then she's forced to rely on this lazy gardener who always has an excuse for not doing anything, which is very amusing. And you know, later in the novel, she admits that her faithful old servants, I am sorry to say, are dead. You know, she's musing on the passage of time. And there's just one longish quote I wanted to highlight because I think it's so good. And this is within those first three chapters again. One had to face the fact St. Mary Mead was not the place it had been. In a sense, of course, nothing was what it had been. You could blame the war, both the wars, or the younger generation, or women going out to work, or the atom bomb, or just the government. But what one really meant was the simple fact that one was growing old. Miss Marple, who was a very sensible lady, knew that quite well. It was just that, in a queer way, she felt it more in St. Mary Mead because it had been her home for so long. Just breaks my heart. Yeah, the bulk of Miss Marple's points on this are coming from those first three chapters, which are like really good. Really, really good. Yeah, they're also coming from when Miss Marple casually says to Chief Inspector Craddock, I hope I shan't murder that woman someday. Talking about Miss Knight. Ah, uh, hello, Dark, Dark Marple. Marple. I know, I know. <laughs> I really do feel for Miss Marple when she's trapped in this situation. But, and this is where we should mention Cherry Baker, you know, she gets out of the situation because Cherry has been coming into the house essentially to clean. She noisily vacuums and sings pop songs as she's cleaning and she badly makes the bed and does a terrible job of washing up the dishes. And well, Miss Marple, I had to stop using all of the good china because um, Cherry it, just, right? it, well, she just dumps all of it into the sink. She like fills the sink with water and yeah. dumps all the dishes into the sink. But we should also note about Cherry because it's really interesting is that it's sort of described of Cherry being sort of like a pretty like educated young housewife. Mm -hmm. And she's just trying to make extra money to support their family in the development. That's why she's taking in this extra work and she's not very good at it, but Miss Marple likes her. And I found this really touching and poignant too. Cherry, however inadequate her housework, wanted to come. And she had qualities that Miss Marple at this moment deemed of supreme importance. Warm-heartedness, vitality, and a deep interest in everything that was going on. Basically, Miss Marple is lonely and she needs quality human contact. She needs engagement. Miss Knight is not only not providing it to her, but by infantilizing her is actually making her more lonely. And that's what's so awful about that situation. And, you know, fortunately, she figures her way out of it with her usual resourcefulness, sends Miss Knight off, and Cherry Baker is going to move in in the apartment over the old stables with her husband. They're going to have more room because apparently they've been uh, driving the neighbors nuts playing music loud in their semi-detached house. And <laughs> it's a match made in heaven, right? There's something so disappointing, though, about the Cherry sequences in this book because Miss Marple really is settling. It feels like settling. And I know we're not supposed to be sad about it, but she's really making the best of a not-so-great situation. I guess what's sad, and, and this goes to, I think, the setting also that Christy draws so 
expertly and beautifully here is that Miss Marple used to be able to get her companionship and her human contact from other people in the village. And those people are either dead or gone. Right at the beginning, you know, she paints the scene of St. Mary Mead. And Christy even says the old world core of it was still there. The blue boar was there and the church and the vicarage and the little nest of Queen Anne and Georgian houses of which hers was one, Miss Marple's. And then Miss Hartnell's house was still there and also Miss Hartnell fighting progress to the last gasp. Miss Weatherby had passed on and her house was now inhabited by the bank manager, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, and then she's talking about all of the quote unquote improvements that happened where the shops changed hand. The fishmonger was unrecognizable with new super windows. There's a supermarket that Miss Hartnell hates. And she's talking about great packets of breakfast cereal, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, there's just not as much of that anymore. So she needs someone who's going to come into the house and provide that companionship because, you know, as much as we would like to pretend that she's doing fine and she could continue on as she had, she can't because she is old. And also like one of the last interesting people left, right, is Dolly and Dolly hasn't been there. Right. Dolly's been jetting all over the world and she definitely has a feel of one foot in, one foot out. You get the sense that Dolly probably had been wanting to not be in St. Mary Mead for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and when the colonel died, she was like, yes, score. Yeah. I'm just, I'm going to like use this house money and like the money that we had. And she was like, like do, 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 travel agency. Book me on the next flight to South America. <laughs> I know. Yeah. She all of a sudden gets this much more exciting life. And it's funny because as as we've talked about in past episodes, when Miss Marple first came onto the scene in those Tuesday Club murders and, you know, the greater 13 problem short stories, she was actually depicted super old, right. but with none of the trappings of old age. It was just, the, you know, she had the the physical characteristics of old age. And then Christy Peter Panned her and made her younger and more vigorous and kind of late middle-aged. And now we're seeing her truly get old. So it's an interesting trajectory for the character, but old age has finally been visited upon her in, in a real and brutal way. It's well done. This is an extremely good, if odd, Miss Marple book as to series-long characters. I think we both came out really high on this. I had an eight. Yeah. And then book-specific characters is not quite as good. It's not disastrous. I mean, I think that Marina Gregg herself is extremely well-drawn, and I just want to pull out Christie's description of her power as an actress, because I think it's really good. She wrote... She had brought personality to her pictures rather than mere sex. The sudden turn of her head, the opening of the deep, lovely eyes, the faint quiver of her mouth, all these were what brought to one suddenly that feeling of breathtaking loveliness that comes not from regularity of feature, but from sudden magic of the flesh that catches the onlooker unawares. She still had this quality, though it was not now so easily apparent. And um, Christy really made me see her. And she doesn't always do that with her physical description. No, she really does. Although I will say that as a personality, basically with Marina, we're getting descriptions of Marina more than we're getting Marina as a character. But how appropriate is that for a movie star? character. Sure. I think it's actually very, it's, you know, we often have that problem with the murderer character, right? Because the murderer turns out to be a completely different person from who they were presenting as on the page. And sometimes she's rather sketchy with that character because of that disconnect. But here it's appropriate. And I think she handles it really well. Like I believed Marina Gregg, the movie star from the second that Dolly Bantry was having tea with her. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The other book specific characters, Heather, 
is notable. I did appreciate Miss Marple's distinction between people who are selfish versus self-centered when it came to Heather Badcock and how she was a very kind person, but a person who didn't think about what her wants and actions did to other people. She's solipsistic. I think that there is a difference between being like truly selfish Mm -hmm. versus being solipsistic or self-involved. It's just complete obliviousness to anybody else. It's a myopia as to other people and her effect on other people. It's 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 almost like a, a state of ignorance as opposed to any sort of malice. And I found that very believable, actually, as to her character. I don't think any of the rest of them really shine all that much. No. I think Miss Knight in her own way is actually good as well, but she's fairly insignificant. Jason Rudd actually reminded me of Richard Burton. And I swear I thought of that before I watched the 1980 <laughs> movie. With his, like, he had like a rugged, ugly, face and kind of clownish yet handsome looks. It just, I got a Richard Burton vibe from him. But Ella Zielinski is a type, you know, she's a devoted secretary. She's in love with her boss. She resents her boss's wife. She even actually looked to me like the secretary Ruth Lessing from Sparkling Cyanide. They both had black hair and a very sort of like contained demeanor. Margot Bentz, I did think was an effective character. And I found one thing that she said extremely striking. And this is when she's talking about Marina. She said, she did the worst thing to me that anyone can do to anyone else. Let them believe that they're loved and wanted and then show them that it's all a sham. Yeah. It's and affecting. we'll get to the adoption stuff, which is, you know, not great, but like that was powerful. This is also, by the way, a really small thing, but did you notice it really bothered me that in the party scene at the fate, there were the bad cocks, Heather and Alfred, and then the all cocks as well. I did, um, listen. Childish sense of humor aside, it's just awkward. Like, just give them a different name. I know. Anyway. Yeah. Um, Where are we landing? Like a four or a five? Let's give it a five rather than a four. Okay. And then we get to setting in tone. A little bit of a mixed bag, although I think generally this book does pretty well on setting in tone. You know, we've talked a lot about the setting of St. Mary Mead and Gossington Hall. I think Christie does so well there, remarkably well. This is a really, really good book as to setting. And by the way, this is a setting we've seen a lot before, but she's putting this new layer on top of it, this fascinating layer of this urban planning that has been visited upon our dear St. Mary Mead and what it's done to the community and how Miss Marple feels about it and Dolly and then the Gossington Hall renovations. And she's really pulled St. Mary Mead into the 60s convincingly and interestingly and poignantly. And like, God, this book is such a great refutation to anyone who says that Christie's books are set in a fantasy world where... No, again, we've talked now over and over again about like those first three chapters. um, So I don't really think we have to harp on it more. But I think that it's so well executed, really like remarkably good. My problem with it is that it's a pretty long book and there's just not much in the middle. And that's hard. You know, we've talked about padding before, right? Mm-hmm. This suffers because of the plot problem that if you know what happened in the first 30 pages, it's really hard to feel compelled to like carefully read the rest of it. I agree. It feels like it has a fantastic setup and then because it's fairly obvious where the story's going, we then know that the next 150 pages are pointless. 
this is in some ways a, a reread issue because I do think that Christie addressed the problem and I don't think that everyone reading it. And you know what? Interestingly, I think it's probably harder to solve this mystery for a reader now than it was in 1962. Because I think in 1962, people were probably much more aware of Gene Tierney than they are now. Well, okay. Same. This would have been harder to solve five years ago. Well, just because of the the idea of the breaking quarantine thing? Yeah. Yes. I mean, I think that makes it a little bit easier, but it's still a functional mystery. It is. It's hard because this is a book that is really, really difficult to reread and judge as an initial read. Um, and except we reread all of these books. Like we read no, all no, of them. I, exactly. No, and that and and that does speak to a certain weakness, but it doesn't mean that the book isn't functioning as a puzzle mystery. I think plenty of people read this book and do not figure it out. Yeah, I imagine that to be true. Also, I imagine that a lot of 10-year-olds, 9-year-olds probably would have a harder time figuring it out. (laughs) There's a specificness to what actually is happening that probably if you were an adult woman reading it, you would immediately understand what had happened. But if you're a child, not so much. I mean, the only other thing I want to pull out just to give the book its due, because this is also something that Francis Isles actually uh, made note of in his review. He said that the chief interest to me of the mirror crack from side to side was the shrewd exposition of what makes a female film star tick the way she does tick. And I think this goes both to setting and tone and character, of course, since this is dealing directly with Marina Gregg. But it's really remarkable, actually, and I say this as someone who lives in LA and has some familiarity with the film and television industry. It's remarkable what Christie says here by way of actually Dr. Gilchrist, who attends on Marina Gregg. And this is what he says about the motion picture industry. The motion picture life is a life of continuous strain, and the more successful you are, the greater the strain. You live always, all day, in the public eye. When you're on location, when you're working, it's hard, but not work with long hours. You're there in the morning, you sit and you wait. You do your small bit, the bit that's being shot over and over again. If you're rehearsing on the stage, you'd be rehearsing as likely as not a whole act or at any rate, a part of an act. The thing would be in sequence. It would be more or less human and credible. But when you're shooting a picture, everything's taken out of sequence. It's a monotonous grinding business. It's exhausting. And again, this is Christy writing what she knew. I mean, she knew film stars at this point. She had experience in the film industry. A little bit later, he says, people say that actors and actresses are vain. That isn't true. They're not conceited about themselves. They're obsessed with themselves. Yes, they need reassurance the whole time. They must be continually reassured. That too is a fine distinction, but a legitimate one. Yeah. She knew her stuff. It helps with the overall read, which is why even as to tone, I was not bored reading this book. I did not find this book a slog to get through, even though I agree with your point that it's a more uneven read than we're used to. Yeah, so I think we're landing on like, what, a seven? Yeah, if not for that, it would get an eight. I mean, we've Mm -hmm. been giving out some eight, so it's slight demerit. Let's give it a seven. And now let's get to Stuck in Its Time. Before we get to the adoption issue, there are a few small moments that made me uncomfortable. I'll just run through them really quickly. Miss Marple, actually, when she's thinking about how Miss Knight makes her feel, says, and I quote, although I may be old, I am not a mentally retarded child. I I know. That's word usage back then. It was yeah. Well, that was completely actually what it would have been. I mean, completely right. 
we also have Dolly Bantry saying um, when she's talking about people who were appeared at the party, then there was a big black man. I don't mean a Negro. I just mean very dark, forceful looking. Okay. I was um, like, that was the one that I, I, I noticed that one particularly. I was like, ooh, that's uncomfortable. Yeah. We have um, Cherry uses the word WAP a lot when she's talking about Giuseppe. She's warning uh, Gladys about him. She says, you know, this is in her mouth, but she says, you know what uh, these WAPs are like. Affiliation orders all over the place, hot-blooded and passionate. That's what these Italians are. You know, we can give her the benefit of the doubt there, but Christy has stereotyped Italians before. And then the only other thing is that I kind of think that there are secretly two gay characters in this novel. The first is Haley Preston, who's the assistant. And he has certainly played that way in the ITV, Julia McKenzie. Yeah, he reads like that. Well, Craddock refers to him as that willow wand of a young man. And then later when Craddock goes to Margot Benz's studio, the photographer, she has an assistant. We're told his name is Johnny Jethro. Suspicious. <laughs> and he calls Craddock my dear multiple times, which is always when my eyebrow starts going up as I'm reading Christy. And he's described by Craddock as, quote, almost as willowy as Haley Preston. He has exuberant hair and he's wearing a kind of lilac smock. And then later, Craddock refers to Johnny Jethro as, quote, her pansy partner. So, you know, that made me a little uncomfortable, but this was the worst of all, and it's really why I'm bringing it up. And I, I'm curious if I'm just being paranoid, Catherine, or if you agree with me here. But okay. very, very late in the novel, when Miss Marple goes to Gossington Hall, basically to confront Jason Rudd about what's happened since Maria Gregg is already dead, she tells Haley Preston that he reminds her of a man she knew, because of course he does, a man named Gerald French. And Preston asks, indeed, what did Gerald French do? And Miss Marple replies, not very much, but he was a very good talker. She sighed. He had had an unfortunate past. You don't say, said Haley Preston, slightly ill at ease. What kind of a past? I won't repeat it, said Miss Marple. He didn't like it talked about. Is Miss Marple implying, I know you're a homosexual? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it does read a little so bit too. like that. I mean, that made me like, very, very sad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's just like a lot of them. That's like the thing that I think that we're talking about. It, not any one of them is that bad. It's yeah. just that there are a lot of them is the thing. And well, and we haven't even gotten to the adoption issue because we've talked about this so many times before, especially in our Ordeal by Innocence episode. Right, and so Christy... like, I don't really want to go like that into depth into it because we talked about it literally for so long in Ordeal by Innocence. So We don't have to go that in, de- in depth into it, but the only point I want to make is that this isn't even really a stuck-in-its-time issue. And you know, when we did our stuck-in-its-time episode where listeners sent in themselves talking about these issues. One of them even said, you know, this seems to be a personal issue as to Agatha Christie because I don't even think people at this time thought about adoption the way that Agatha Christie seems to. I mean, she just seems to have this hang up. It's very weird. There's her own relationship with Rosalind, which is a little bit of hands-off one. We've talked a lot about that. And I haven't mentioned it in a while, so it's worth bringing up again. And another listener reminded me of it recently in an email. But Christie's own mother, who she was very close to, had that weird upbringing where she really was adopted by her aunt. And she felt sort of abandoned by her mother. And that's why Christy had two grandmothers on her mother's side. She had her natural grandmother and her auntie granny, who was, you know, her mother's aunt, who also really performed a maternal role in her mother's life. And 
it was very damaging, apparently, to Christie's mother. And I think Christie carried that with her and just had this hang up about adoption that was personal to her. So it's not even stuck in its time, but it's just very upsetting because we all have experiences with non-traditional families that involve elements of adoption. And it's just horrible to have to read stuff like Dolly Bantry referring to half adopting a few strays. What does half adopting even mean? I I don't even know what that means. And then Jason Rudd says it wasn't the real thing when he's talking about adoption. And my favorite one was Craddock, when he's talking to Margot Bentz, he makes reference to the other two children Marina adopted. And he says, I'll call them brothers for the sake of convenience. And it's like, yeah, if they were all adopted, then... Yeah, yes, really, really, really weird. Yeah. I, I, yeah, it's very, very off-putting. Anytime it comes up, it ends up being off-putting. And that's why we're going to take a point off for it. So yep. I think... Yep. So what are we doing? We're doing two. I think, yeah, we take a point off for the adoption stuff and we take a point off for all of the other little things here and there, which add up to one point. So... It is time, Catherine, for our tallying up of the mirror cracked from side to side. We have a 6 plus 3 plus 8 plus 5 plus 7 minus 2 for a grand total of 27 points, putting the mirror cracked from side to side in an interesting spot. It is right now in a tie with a number of titles hanging out at around 35th out of 53 titles. So sounds about right, right now, I think it sounds about right too. It's, you know, it's slightly lower than the midway point. It's not super low, but it's a little low. And I think that feels right to me. Um, so right now it's tied with Hercule Poirot's Christmas and or M and Death in the Clouds. Those are standing at 35, 36, and 37. I feel pretty strongly that both Hercule Poirot's Christmas and NRM are better than this title. And I feel extremely strongly that I like this title a lot more than Death in the Clouds. And it's yeah. in fact a better title. Completely agreed. Okay. So that means that the mirror cracked from side to side will now take 37th place out of 53 titles. You know, a decent showing for a novel that has some issues, but was certainly enjoyable and an intriguing read. Well, that is The Mirror Cracked from Side to Side. As we mentioned, if you'd like to potentially get a free copy of Mark Aldridge's new book and you are in the U.S., you could go over to our Patreon site to take part in a quiz in the coming weeks. That is over at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. You could also email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at allaboutthedame. Catherine is on Twitter at Brobcat. Our Facebook page is allaboutagatha and our Instagram handle is at allaboutagatha. And if you haven't yet done so, please take a moment to rate and review us so that others can find our podcast. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.